Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Our service will be led by our Minister Katrina, and everything we need to follow the service is both on our order of service and on the screen. Thank you, Anne. Our call to worship this morning is responsive. Um, it is on the, the order of service sheet. It will also appear on the screen. So if you could join with me in saying the words that are um, in white on the screen or indicated as all on the order of service. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is within me. Our first hymn of worship this morning is on the service sheets, and it's one that speaks of many different names of our amazing God. Bring many names, beautiful and good. Celebrate in parable and story. If you're able, you're invited to stand with us as we sing. Thank you. 
of approach this morning comes from a book by a theologian called Jan Berry, and the book is called Naming God. And of course, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer at the end of that guided prayer. So let's pray together. Praise to God, who loves us like a mother, who knows the pain and the risk of giving birth and the grief of letting go. Praise to God, who loves us like a mother, comforting us when we are vulnerable and nurturing us to grow and flourish. Praise to God, who loves us like a mother, raging with us at injustice and challenging us to integrity. Praise to God, who loves us like a mother, forgiving our weakness and wrongdoing and beckoning us into new possibilities. Praise to God, who loves us like a mother, in birth, in growth, in life, in death. Praise to God, our mother. Praise to God, who loves us like a father, and to whom we now pray in the words Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen.
as most, if not everybody, will know, one of the images of God that Jesus uses in the New Testament is that of a mother hen. He speaks of longing to gather the people under his wings, as well, under his protection, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And I found a lovely picture of a, a hen protecting her chicken. It's a lovely image, isn't it, that the mother hen sees predators. She can't fly, her chicks can't fly, so she makes herself big and gathers the chicks under there. And then that's too big, hopefully, for the predators to attack. But I also found lots of other images of mother hens this week. Here we have a hen mothering two young pigeons. I like that one because I'm actually secretly quite fond of pigeons. They're generally viewed as pests, I know that. Uh, But doves are pigeons by any other name. So there's a, a mother hen protecting two young pigeons. And there's a mother hen protecting some kittens. Strange that I might like that one, isn't it? One for the cat folk among us. A mother hen protecting a puppy dog. That's the dog people. Um, I can't quite see what I'm going to have to come over and remind myself what she's protecting. Oh, a pig. A piglet. That's a mother hen protecting a little black piglet. And this one, which is not terribly clear, is actually a cockerel. It's a father hen who is taking care of a goat kid. Really sweet images, aren't they? But I was thinking about them, and yes, they are sweet, but they also seem to me to remind me that God's care is not just for people, nice people, that are kind of like God, nice Christian people, but for all people and for all creation, in fact. The embrace of the pigeons, the ones that are sort of similar but not quite, and the embrace of the kittens and the dogs and the pig and the the goat and everything else, those are completely different that perhaps we're not so sure about. The the pests like the pigeons or the slightly squeaky ones like the, the pigs, but all held within God's love. God loves all creation and wants all creation to be held safe. I also have another image I'm going to show you. This is a mother eagle. And eagles, of course, are very different from hens in all sorts of ways. And I probably wouldn't want an eagle and a hen in the same place. It has to be said, otherwise a hen might end up as dinner. But eagles can fly, and they live very, very high up. So one of the jobs of the mother eagle is to teach her chicks to fly. And when she thinks they're ready to learn to fly, she shuffles them along to the edge of the cliff, pushes them off. And if they don't flap their wings, they go whoosh. But if she sees them going whoosh, she zooms down, catches them, flies back up and brings them to safety. And that's one of the other images we have of God in the Bible. This is an Old Testament image of God as the mother eagle who teaches the chicks to fly but doesn't let them fall to be killed and destroyed. And we need to hold those two images together. The God who protects and nurtures all and the God 
who wants everyone to find freedom and to flourish, to be who we're meant to be, but will catch us if we fail and fall and bring us up to safety. So two very lovely images of God that I never tire of, of sharing with you. Um, and I think they're just worth pondering a little bit this morning. So we're going to sing a song now about being held safe in the shadow of the Lord. We listen for the word of God in scripture, first in Exodus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was fine, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, 
while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And then from the gospel as told by Luke, our story for January. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided the property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and travelled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here am I dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves quickly, Bring out a robe, the best one. And put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house and heard music and dancing, he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. The slave replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. 
Then the son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. He answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God amongst us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. So for those who are counting, this is the fourth and final visit to the parable that we know as the prodigal son. So maybe it's about time I showed you this painting. It's a very famous painting. Does anybody know who painted it? Rembrandt, Rembrandt, yeah. It's a Rembrandt painting of the return of the prodigal son. And it has inspired countless theologians and preachers to reflect on the story Perhaps one of the best known is Henri Nouwen, who wrote a whole book reflecting on the story in the light of this painting. And it's certainly a fascinating painting. It's a a painting that prompts a lot of discussion by theologians and art critics. You could spend days on the internet reading about details of the painting or what people think they recommend. But actually, it's the image as a whole and the characters portrayed within it that I'm more interested in today. Right in the middle, at the front, are the main characters, of course. We have the father with the red robe around his shoulders and kneeling at his feet with very shabby clothes and falling apart shoes is the younger son, and they are reunited. Off to our right stands a tall figure, also in a red robe, which marks him out as the son of the father, the elder son, whose hands are clasped together and whose expression pretty much says it all. It's not a happy face. And then there are two other figures, and nobody's entirely sure who they are. 
But one of the thoughts is that the one who is seated, who seems to be very well dressed, might be a tax collector or a merchant who is included in the painting simply to show that the, the father was a wealthy man. And the, the young figure, half hidden behind a pillar, looks perhaps like one of the servants. Maybe this is the one who was sent off to, uh, to slaughter the fatted calf. But if you look very closely, and I'm not sure how well it shows in this light, there is another figure up here in the corner, a very shadowy figure who is quite difficult to make out. And I chose this particular version of, of the painting because you can actually make that figure out, at least if you get close up. In many of them, it is so dark that you can barely make out who it is. There's lots of speculation about who that might be. For me, it has always been quite clear that this is the mother. The mother standing in the shadows, watching what's going on. The mother who never appears in the story. She doesn't speak, she doesn't do anything, there's no reference to her. But in this painting, she becomes the silent witness who watches everything. And then this slightly, um, whoops, go back, um, slightly closed in one, you, you might just about be able to make her out there in that, in that close-up. I think that's the mother. And I think she's a really important character in the story. In fact, I think the silent, hidden, invisible characters are important in all stories and can be just as intriguing and important as the others. And as I was reflecting on this idea of women standing in the shadows, watching in silence, I found myself reminded of the Old Testament story of Moses, where a woman who is referred to as his sister keeps watch over the basket which is floating in the reeds where this as yet unnamed infant is lies lies, sorry. What intrigued me reading this passage from Exodus two again was who speaks and who is silent, who is active and who is passive, who does nothing? Who gets named and who has no name? So I'm going to be a little bit mean this morning. Without checking your Bibles or sheets of paper or whatever you may have the reading on, can you tell me who are the characters in that story from Exodus about the early life of Moses? Sorry? Pharaoh's daughter. Thank you, Nancy. Yep, quite an important character. Moses' mother and father. Yep, that's right. Thank you, Lena. Well, it may have been Miriam, but she's not named as Miriam. Yep, so Moses' sister. Yep, we tend to think it was Miriam, but we don't actually know. Yep. The Pharaoh's daughter's servant. And the main man himself, the baby. Yes, so we have a man from the house of Levi, 
a Levite woman, their son, who is eventually named Moses. We have the sister of the child, who, because of links with further on in, in the story, we think is Miriam, but nobody can prove it. The daughter of Pharaoh and the maid. So one person only gets named, and their name is the Egyptian name given to them by their foster mother, adoptive mother, and that's Moses. Everybody else is just referred to by their relationship to other humans. And that in itself is something really fascinating and worth thinking about. But I'm going to ask you another question because I'm feeling extra mean this morning. Who speaks in this story? The sister, yeah, Wendy. And one other person. Pharaoh's daughter. Now that's interesting, isn't it? How many Bible stories are there where the only people who speak are women? Especially Old Testament stories. Maybe there are, but off the top of my head, I couldn't think of one. So actually, the really silent people in this story are Moses' parents, who are just mentioned in passing. They are way out of it. And the father, he doesn't speak, he doesn't act. I mean, at least the mother gets to make the basket, but apart from producing the son, of which there is no mention, fortunately, the father is just there in the background. So it's a very unusual story. But I think it reminds us, perhaps a little bit, that all of us is part of many stories. We inhabit different stories. The story of our family, the story of our workplace, if we go to work, the story of our church. And in some of those stories, we are important characters. We have influence, we speak, we act. And in others, maybe most of them, we're minor characters. We don't have an important role. We may not say very much, if anything. We may just be there. In some contexts, we're active and vocal. In others, we're passive and silent. And that's not wrong. That's just the reality, I think, of life. And it would be worth, not just now, but later on, or you can do it now and not listen to me, that's absolutely fine, just thinking about the roles we have in different contexts and how it feels. Do we feel that we want a more major role or a more minor role? Do we wish we spoke out? Do we wish we didn't speak out? How does it feel? What is healthy for us and what is healthy for those who are part of those stories? Today we heard two stories and in one of them a woman watches silently, sees what is happening, speaks out and acts. In the other story there is no mention of a woman at all. Yet we could imagine her watching, seeing what's happening, and neither speaking nor acting. The dilemma that the hidden mother in the parable faces is a real one. Do I speak or do I stay silent? Lots of people face that dilemma. And the circumstances in which it is faced will inform what kind of response is helpful. As a writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's a time to speak and a time to keep silent. 
When I turn on the television news at the moment, there are endless reports about Donald Trump. There are endless reports about Brexit. And then another single recurring theme. People speaking out against physical, sexual and emotional abuse. Present-day cruelty to vulnerable adults in care homes. Historic abuse of children in children's homes. Abuse by football coaches, swimming coaches and team doctors for elite gymnasts. Assaults by surgeons and gynaecologists. And from time to time, as well as film directors that we've heard about recently and actors, there are teachers, priests and ministers. All who have abused others in some way. And often, very many years after the event, people are breaking silence on what's happened to them or what they have seen and been too afraid or too ashamed or too indifferent to report until now. We observe these events from a distance, perhaps. So how do we respond? Those who use social media will know that last year there was a hashtag, MeToo, in which women were invited to post that with nothing else if at some point in their life they had experienced abuse or harassment. I posted that hashtag. I posted that hashtag because when I was a young engineer I was groped by a male colleague. I posted that hashtag because as a trainee minister I was propositioned by a married Baptist minister. And I posted that hashtag because basically I had kept silent. More recently, we have seen actors dressed in black who have taken activists as their plus one to award ceremonies. Women's marches and rallies have expressed solidarity among and with those affected by different kinds of abuse. But whilst thousands, maybe millions of women and men have been able to act or speak out, others have remained silent. They're too afraid to do so. It isn't easy to break the silence, even if it feels the right thing to do. But there's a flip side to it, because silence can be, and sometimes is, equated with collusion. This weekend is marked by some people, secular and religious, as the Holocaust Memorial, remembering the Jews, mentally ill people, and homosexual people who were exterminated under Hitler's Nazi regime. And I remember as a student when I was learning about this, one of the authors commented that it was the silent obedience of railway clerks whose job it was to make sure the trains ran on time that allowed that to happen. All it needed was somebody to stop the trains running or interfere with the trains running and it would have been a lot more difficult. 
Now, we will never know what motivated that silence. They may have been equally terrified. They may have approved. They may have been indifferent. We don't know. But there is that saying, isn't there? All it needs for evil to triumph is for good people to do or to say nothing. And so if we go back to that parable and the mother standing in the shadows watching, we realise that whilst it can seem really simple to say, well, she can see what's going on, she ought to speak out, in real life it can be a lot more messy, a lot more complicated and confusing, whether it's in our own stories or our collective story. So can we, in our imaginations, go into that painting and into that story and stand beside the mother, hearing what she hears, seeing what she sees, and deciding how to respond? As with the other characters... I offer you my attempt to do that. There's a sight I thought I'd never see again. The three of them under the one roof. I'm not quite sure how I should feel, to be honest, because you could cut the atmosphere with a knife. My elder son is fuming as he watches his father embrace his little brother. My younger son is weeping with shame and embarrassment under the gaze of his father. My husband is overwhelmed with joy at the return of his youngest and actually seems oblivious to the anger of his older son. I wish I could just sweep them all up in my arms and hold them to me, just like I could when they were children. I wish my husband would lean his head on my shoulder and let me protect him in my arms. I wish, like a mother hen, I could gather them up and protect them. But protect them from what? And why? I can't just wrap them up in my love and everything will magically come right. There are hurts to heal, relationships to mend, and hard though it is, truths to be told. Only then is reconciliation possible, forgiveness achievable. If I love them, if I really love them, then I must find my voice, speak the truths they need to hear, however unpalatable that may be. And then I must mother afresh, nurturing new behaviours, new attitudes, new understandings. Standing back and watching has certainly given me different perspectives from theirs that they perhaps cannot see. This waiting time The watching time is not wasted time. But I need to make it be productive time. 
I remember that old story about Moses and the sister who waited and watched over him as he lay in his floating cradle. How terrified she must have been when the Egyptian princess ordered him to be brought out of the water. I wonder what thoughts went through her head as she weighed the consequences of speaking out or staying silent. But if she hadn't found a voice, if she hadn't acted, the story would have ended very differently. To be like the hen protecting my brood is good. But I also need to learn from the mother eagle, whose love is tough and realistic, as she teaches her chicks the essential skills of flight. Watching, waiting, deciding the moment is right and nudging them out of the nest. Still watching, still waiting, and if necessary, swooping down to rescue them and bring them back to safety. Somewhere between these two, there is a balance to be found. But it has to begin. There has to be a first step, a first word. So I take my courage in both hands. I step forward into the picture. And I call their names. Is God more like the mother hen? Or more like the mother eagle? Does God stand back silently watching, not interfering, allowing our freedom to take us wherever it will? Do we need to be restored and healed? Do we need to hear unpalatable truths or uncomfortable realities that we might have to face? Do we lean too much to the extreme of the hen or the extreme of the eagle? And what might we learn from reflecting on the other one? Whatever answers we come to, and they will always be provisional, whatever our needs to speak or keep silent, to act or to be still, we can bring all of our thoughts, all of our feelings all of our concerns to the God who loves us with a mother's love. Our God, we praise your mother love, the love that gives us birth as children of eternity.
over the last few weeks, we have been quite intentional in our prayers in following up on ideas that emerged from the house groups in the autumn, looking at worship. And part of that was our approach to intercessory prayer. And we thought it would be good to create some different patterns that might free a few more folk up to think, actually, I could do that. I could lead intercessory prayer in that size, style. But also because different styles are more natural for different people. So, for example, uh, three weeks ago, I just prayed in the normal way. I wrote some prayers. Then the next week, we used published intercessory prayers. And that is a pattern that we plan to use roughly once a month going forward. Last week, Holly led us in silent prayer. And again, we would like to continue to do that from at least probably once a month. And sometimes we pray with props. I'm probably the one that does that the most, it has to be said. But sometimes just using objects can help us to think about our prayers. So this week, we're going to use teaspoons. Now, over the years, I have used the teaspoon illustration for prayer many times and talked about how the abbreviation for teaspoon, TSP, can be used as a reminder to pray Thank you, sorry, and please. But I'm not doing that today. Instead, I'm going to use a couple of verses from Ephesians as a starting point, and I'm going to give out teaspoons to you. Um, If you're left-handed, you may just want to hold back, because I have got some left-handed teaspoons. I hope you're impressed. So I'm going to just start passing these out. If you can just kind of take one and then pass them along the row. That would be good. Um, If anybody's left-handed, if they want to stick their hands up, I can uh, get left-handed teaspoons out of my little left-handed packet and give them to you. Any left-handers here today? Okay, well, I'll have ten to take home for myself then. That'll be fine. So on each of these teaspoons, it says Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. And this is what those verses say. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So these teaspoons with that reference on are for you to take home as a little reminder when you stir your tea or whatever you do with it about this particular promise of prayer that we might be filled with all the fullness of God and we're going to use it as a prompt for our prayers. So I'm going to invite you to hold that teaspoon and I'm going to guide us through some half silent prayers. It'll kind of make sense as we get going. So let us pray together. Incomprehensible God, that we and others may be filled to the measure of the fullness of your love, so we pray. A teaspoon, used by some to add sugar or sweetener to drinks adding sweetness and bringing pleasure. 
We pray for those whose lives are arduous, who struggle to keep going, and for whom there is little pleasure or joy. We pray for those whose lives lack not only sweetness, but are actively sour or bitter for whatever reason. Fill them with the measure of your sweet love, we pray. A teaspoon is just right to measure a small quantity of salt, bringing out the flavour of food. We pray for those whose lives lack savour for whom the humdrum grind of work or home is wearying. We pray for those who cannot discover their true potential because they lack access to education or other opportunity. Fill them with the measure of your cherishing love, we pray. A teaspoon is around about five mils, ideal to measure medicine, to ease suffering and promote healing. We pray for those who are unwell in body, mind or spirit, naming in the quiet of our hearts those known to us. We pray for all employed in healthcare and in medical research bringing hope and healing to others. Fill them with the measure of your healing love, we pray. Not only for measuring, but also for mixing, stirring, feeding. A teaspoon is not simply passive. So we pray for ourselves that we will find nourishment for our souls in our worship together and that we will be stirred by the Holy Spirit to live the words we pray. Feel us with the fullness of the measure of your enabling love. Lord, we pray. Amen.
holds us and all creation safe in your arms. We offer these our gifts of money, some given openly and some given privately in ways that cannot be seen. And we pray that as we give our money, you will help us to spend it wisely, to share the news of your great love with others, both here in this place and throughout the world. Amen. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, how he left the realms of glory for the cross of Calvary. We stand if we can as we sing our closing
God, whose love for us is immeasurable and whose patience with us inexhaustible. As we leave this place to return to our everyday lives with all the challenges they bring, grant us the blessing of your peace, your love and your silent accompaniment now and always. Mm -hmm.